0: We stand for the reading of Scripture from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 9 through 17. Hear now the words of God. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death "...except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days." And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, "...do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place." Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. These are the words of God and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. This passage from Esther today is situated within a magnificent story, a story par excellence. On the surface, this is a story of two exiled Israelites living in a powerful yet fickle foreign land, who accomplished nothing short of saving god's people from utter distinction uh, extinction excuse me a threat that would effectually undo the covenant promises of god this is no small problem within the bible the book of esther is quite unique it has virtually all the ingredients that people um through through history have most loved in a story all the classic storybook ingredients we have a beautiful and courageous heroine We have a romantic and shifting love thread. We have a life or death threat to the protagonist. We have certainly a thoroughly evil villain in Himan, the the kind you love to hate. Um, We have suspense, dramatic irony, evocative descriptions of exotic places, sudden reversals of action, poetic justice, and, of course, a happily ever after ending. Its literary nuance and masterful plot structure are often overlooked and underestimated, but yield powerful theological insight, and some aspects of which I hope to tease out in this sermon today. In addition to all of its narrative virtue, the story has a peculiar characteristic, namely, God is never mentioned in this book. This is our first clue that something's up. Additionally, there is no instance of a conspicuous miracle or indisputable divine intervention here. Neither is there any mention of prayer, which is especially strange because there is reference to fasting. Also absent are all the other central features of Israelite worship, such as the temple, Jerusalem, or the Torah, the law. Furthermore, there is no mention of the essential marks of faithful living in the post-exilic period, such as the observance of dietary laws, one thinks of Daniel, ...and injunctions against intermarriage with non-Jews. So the book of Esther appears on the veneer to be merely a secular story of court intrigue in the Persian Empire... ...without any real involvement of God in the events. Certainly some have read it that way. Yet ironically, it is this very aspect that provides the Christian with the perfect entry point... ...into understanding Esther's distinctive theological contribution... For the, for the conscientious reader, it's an invitation really to read the story looking for God's hidden activity. And there are subtle signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd coincidences and ironic reversals. And it all forces us to see God's purpose at work in this story. But behind the scenes. So the story is really uh, uh, is set in... Uh, about 100 years after the Babylonian exile uh, of the Israelites from their land in Judah after the uh, city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire at the time. The main characters in the story are two Jews, Mordecai and his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia who is a somewhat cartoonish, drunken pushover. Additionally, there's the Persian officer, Haman, the cunning villain, and uh, the main antagonist. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days. And yes, for those of you who are suddenly doing the math in your head, that's about six months of feasting. And it's all for the grandiose purpose, of course, uh, of displaying his greatness and splendor, something kings often like to do. And on the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear before the party to show off her exquisite beauty. She bluntly refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all the Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes, comically, while he himself can't seem to get a handle on his own. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. Yes, I know, this is like a really bad soap opera, but it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant, and she actually wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Didn't see that coming. Now, after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now, right here from the beginning, God is not mentioned anywhere, but it's this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? We're next introduced to Haman who is not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. That's an important detail. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15, where Saul destroys the city of Amalek, but spares its king Agag? This is from whom Haman is descended. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and then he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, Which, of course, fills Haman, the Agagite, with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact another crazy and arbitrary decree to destroy all the Jewish people, every last one of them. Then, in a scene loaded with thematic significance, to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice, or some translations say casts the lot. You get the idea. And the word for die here in Hebrew is actually the word pur, p-u-r. So tuck that little tidbit away for later. It's going to be an important detail. Eleven months after this rolling of, uh, excuse me, eleven months later, on the thirteenth day of the Jewish month of Adar, all the Jews will die according to the roll of the dice. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really bad decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther who are the only hope for the Jewish people at this point. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, of course, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement from our text today, Mordecai is confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from some other place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud and says, who knows, maybe you, Esther, became queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her sobering and powerful words, if I perish, I perish. Then in what unfolds, we begin to watch the ironic reversals of all Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, And she says she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the next day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled on it the next morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews or for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that that night the king can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him, I guess, for a good bedtime reading. And he just so happens to hear about, in those chronicles, how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king, in that moment, orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. This is so satisfying. So now Haman has has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Don't you love uh, when that happens in a story, Poetic Justice? And it's this moment in the story uh, that, that satisfies us as readers, but also it serves as a pivot for the entire book. It's Haman's downfall and it's Mordecai's rise to power. Can you detect here a biblical motif? Serpent head crushing anyone? So watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that, the first, that, first of all, she's Jewish, which she did not know. And second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king has had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage. And he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. Talk about poetic justice. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter decree on the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed the 13th of Adar. Now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and the Jews everywhere, they hold banquets and feasts and they celebrate this new decree. And Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually decree day comes. The Jews triumph over their enemies. They destroy Haman's family. And then any other Persian official who had joined Haman's plot And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And this still today is the most festive Jewish um, celebration. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember the word "pur" for dice, of course. Purim is related directly to the idea that chance wasn't by chance after all. So the book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom, and we are told about how his royal greatness uh, about his royal greatness and splendor there, and then the Jews thrive in Persia. So that was a quick overview. Uh, of the story of Esther, in which we're going to look at more detail at a certain section here. But I want you to notice something, and there's an insert in your bulletin if you haven't seen it, um, where the outline of this narrative plot is, is displayed, and you can really see how carefully crafted and structured the story is. Um, the story itself is a, is a work of literary art, and we, ha- we have to appreciate that. In fact, it's the, it's the structure of this story out of which the theology comes, And so notice how the structure has been designed. The story was full of certain moments of dramatic reversals here and there. But we can now see that the whole story itself is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first save the king, but now in the end they save all the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquets. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes and then Esther's two banquets that act sort of as a frame around this great reversal in the story. Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. This story is wonderfully put together and we have to learn to read these texts with an eye toward this kind of poetic detail Because it is often in these literary details in which the theological meaning lies. Pretty remarkable. It's a beautiful work of art. Now let's go back and look at Esther's situation in the text that we've read. This is her defining moment in the story. Where in order to save all the Jews, she must approach the temperamental king unannounced and uninvited. All in all, the odds are heavily stacked against her. Nothing would indicate that an uninvited entrance into the throne room would go very well. Persian law forbids it. The concealment of her identity as a Jew complicates it. The impulsiveness of the king threatens it. So Esther is now in a defining moment. She can either retreat into self-protective silence or she can take the ultimate risk, hold her breath, go into the throne room. The first option may save her own neck, but her people will be ruthlessly slaughtered. The second option may save her people, but it risks her own death to do so. Even then, it may not save her people. Haman's edict has been issued. Could it really be revoked? People of faith, you and me, frequently find ourselves in similar situations, even if the stakes aren't always as high. How we respond often reveals, how much about, uh, how it reveals much about our faith and about what kind of character we have. A girl is mistreated at school by a mutual friend, for example, and a Christian classmate find herself, finds, finds herself in a defining moment. Will she retreat into self-protective silence and slink away from the opportunity, or will she defend her classmate and come to her aid? The first is the easier route, of course. It saves her own neck. While letting the other person take the abuse. The second option is riskier. She may come to the aid of the mistreated classmate, but she risked her own reputation to do it. What will she do? Suppose, due to a careless mistake, an organization faces some unfortunate or unintended ramifications. The leader of that organization faces a defining moment. Will he throw those beneath him under the bus, letting them take the fall? While he saves his own skin, or will he stand up and take responsibility for what has happened, even if it means great personal cost to his own career? The first option is expedient, but the second is responsible and morally courageous. What will he do? Esther is in that kind of situation here. She's in a defining moment that we also find ourselves in sometimes. She's at a fork in the road. She can either try to save her own neck while her people perish, Or she can risk her own life, hoping to save theirs. Knowing the difficulty of the situation, Mordecai sends back a report with several lines of argument to encourage her to do the right thing. He begins by saying, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. In other words, if Esther chooses to remain silent in order to try to play it safe for her own well-being, it will not benefit her in the end. She is a Jew, and the edict makes no distinctions between Jews inside the palace and Jews outside the palace. That's who she is. According to the edict, all Jews are to be put to death, no exceptions. So if Esther does the right thing by interceding with the king on behalf of her people, she does put herself at great personal risk. She might keep her life. She might not. But if she does not go to the king and keeps quiet instead... She may keep her life for now, but in the end, she will surely die. Then Mordecai continues. He says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Mordecai then closes the appeal with a challenging question. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? The looming day of slaughter had been determined by chance, by the rolling of the dice. But Mordecai suggests to to Esther that she may very well not be in her current position by chance or mere accident. Perhaps there is something larger, something purposeful and providential at work. Perhaps she wasn't gathered into the palace with all the other young maidens by chance. Perhaps she didn't just happen to appeal to the king. Perhaps the fact that she, a Jew, is the queen at this particular point in time is not accidental at all. That's what Mordecai's uh, offering. Perhaps God has placed her right where she is, in this very place, in this defining moment, so that she might be the means through which her people are delivered. Perhaps there is something larger at work than ancient agagite animosity toward the Jews and the cold fate of the dice. Perhaps there is a deeper providential plan at work that has placed Esther in this fortuitous position for just a time as this. So as a result, Esther responds with decisive conviction. She sends a reply back to Mordecai, "'Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish.'" So while the king and Haman are feasting, Esther and the Jews begin fasting. The Jews have already begun to fast at the news of the terrible edict. But now Esther requests that they hold an intercessory fast on her behalf. And it is this particular, uh, and it's a particularly severe fast. Many fasts were only during the day. This fast was to be day and night. Moreover, it was three days long. Not only that, but this fast would begin on the eve of Passover, thus interfering with an all-important Jewish celebration. However, uh, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so after three days, she will go to the king, come what may, and if she lives, she lives. If she dies, she dies. Significantly here, in the character of Esther... There's been a transformation in this crucible of crisis. For the first time, Esther is not just passively floating downstream in the current of uh, Persian culture. She is willing to swim upstream to do what is right. She no longer just accepts whatever Mordecai tells her to do, but for the first time, she takes action and tells Mordecai what to do. In fact, up to this point, Esther has been the object, not the subject, of most of the verbs and has not spoken one word in the story. But from now on, she is a shrewd and able figure, initiating the action, able to execute her plans, obtain royal favor, and defeat her people's enemy. Leland Riken points out, interestingly, that Esther is the only person in this story with two names. Her Hebrew name, Hadassah, And her Persian name, Esther. He reads this as an indication of the identity crisis with which she is faced when, after being raised a Jew, she is thrust into the king's court where she must live as a pagan. Her Jewish character led her to obey Mordecai, which meant paradoxically that she must obey that character and live, uh, excuse me, that she must deny that character and live as a pagan. She found favor in the court of the king, enabling her to become an agent through whom God would fulfill his ancient promises to her people, whether she was aware of it or not. Nevertheless, she had to overcome herself in order to do what God had created her and positioned her to do. So in this defining moment, Esther, for the first time, responds with resolute conviction. If I go, if I perish, I perish. For the first time, she acts with courage and not compromising compliance. For the first time, doing what is right is more important to her than her own well-being. All of it is brought out because Mordecai has urged her to see herself as part of a larger providential plan, to realize that the circumstances that have brought her to this moment have not been random or accidental, but rather have been orchestrated to give her a crucial and indispensable role to play in their people's deliverance. So consequently, her distressing moment of crisis becomes for her a defining moment of conviction. In the same way, when we find ourselves in a crucible of testing or in a difficult crisis, as Esther found herself, what do we do? Do we try to focus on primarily how to get ourselves out of it as quickly as possible? And as little pain as, as, as possible, with little pain as possible. Or instead, should we focus mainly on the fact that God has placed us for his purposes exactly where we are in this particular defining moment, whatever it may be, for such a time as this, and then ask how God might want us to use that situation. That means that we need to ask ourselves, why might God have placed me in this neighborhood with these neighbors at this point in time? Why might God have placed me in this office with these co-workers during this season of this company's life and during the seasons of my colleagues' lives? Why might God have crossed my path with this person's path at this moment in time? How might he want to use me in his or her life? Why might God have placed us in this nation at this point in history in the midst of these particular events? What would faithfulness to him look like here and now today? What might he want to do with us and through us in our homes, in our community, in our school, in our businesses, in our churches? Why has God placed me exactly where he has me right now? What are the defining moments at this stage in my life? These are important questions we should ask ourselves honestly and sincerely. So having adjusted our perspective to see our defining moment as orchestrated by God's providence, we must then face that defining moment with a willingness to lose everything, to be risky. But not just for the sake of risk, but rather for Christ himself. To follow Christ means to give up ourselves, to risk. Knowing that Christ himself in his defining moment was willing to lose everything for us. He was the first. For Esther, realizing that her life was able, uh, excuse me, was being guided by the hand of providence, meant being willing to risk her own life to save her people. Commentator Michael Fox has noted that Esther's life just might be more significant than she realizes. Perhaps yours is too. It might hold a meaning that she has not envisioned. For that very reason, she must be willing to risk it all. For us, realizing that our life is providentially bound up with the crucified and risen Christ means a willingness to lose everything to follow him. It means being willing to sacrifice everything in this life for the sake of the true life that Jesus gives. As Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 16. So with the conviction and courage of Esther, the young lady in the midst of a defining moment at school can say to herself, because Jesus has already gone to the cross for me, and has suffered ostracism for my sake, I will come to this student's side, and if I am ostracized, I am ostracized. The leader of an organization in the midst of a defining moment that requires someone to take responsibility for a mess that's been created can say, because Jesus has already gone to the cross for me and stepped into my place of judgment, I will step up and take responsibility. And if my career is ruined, my career is ruined." Whatever the defining moment, we can act with conviction and courage by saying, I too will cast myself into the hands of my God. For these are the hands that have already received the cup of bitterness in the garden of Gethsemane. These are the hands that have already taken up the nails on the cross of Calvary. These are the hands that have have already been at work underneath me and around me and beside me so that I might not respond, but I might respond with courage and conviction in this moment <clears throat> and say, who knows, this place, this time, this situation, this position, maybe, just maybe, God has placed me right here where I am for, for such a time as this. <clears throat> I said at the beginning that the absence of God in the book of Esther is really an invitation to look for his hidden presence and the salvation of his people. In this way, the story of Esther, though never mentioning God, is thoroughly theological. On the surface, the story is one, of confident, uh, in co- uh, is one of conflict between Haman and the Jews. But on a deeper level, however, it is a story that elevates two competing theories of how the world works. On the one side is the apparent callous injustice and cruelty of fate. you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like the world just as a matter of this cold mechanical process and things are going to be what they be, the old song, "K, Sera, Sera, whatever will be, will be. It's just fated to happen. There's no meaning. I feel that way sometimes. But there's this apparent callousness to this casting of lots of Haman, right, that we see in the story, this world of chance. But then that's set up against the wise but secret providence of God embodied in the invisible divine hand which is at work even when we cannot see it, when we do not understand it, and sometimes even doubt it's there. So Esther, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, shows us that God must be trusted even when he cannot be seen and that we must learn to live by faith and not by mere sight. On the surface, the world may look like a senseless unfolding of cold injustice and fate, but below the surface is the invisible but providential hand of God, orchestrating all things to accomplish his purpose. In other words, his poetic providence is at work in your life. It needs to be emphasized that this providential mercy is true for the Jews in Esther, not simply because they are happen to be the fortunate beneficiaries of some generic providence. It is true for them because, and only because, God refuses to allow the destruction of his special covenant people. Of course, God's providence involves and touches all people and all nations for good or for ill. We know that. But the powerful testimony of Esther for us is that God works out his providential designs for the benefit of his chosen people, for the simple reason that they are his covenant people. In that sense, the testimony of God's hidden providence in Esther is an extension, uh, is, excuse me, is an extended Old Testament example of Paul's words in Romans eight twenty eight, and you know this by heart. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purposes. So one consequence of this realization is that the message of Esther and its larger theological problem of of this idea of divine hiddenness can only be understood in relation to God's covenant promises and commitments. And that, of course, is simply another way of saying that they can be understood fully only in light of the person and work of Christ, who is the climax of God's covenant and the fulfillment of God's promises He's the ultimate revelation of God's hidden presence in the world. In the Old Testament, God is both present and hidden. We see both sides. Even more intriguingly, though, as the Old Testament unfolds, there is a gradual shift from presence to absence. It is as if God slowly disappears and recedes from the perceptible involvement as history progresses. From creation to the post-exilic period in which the uh, story of Esther is set, the presence of God among his people became a fading reality. And as a result, there's a kind of tension that has developed between the reality of God's seeming absence and the belief in God's abiding presence. What was able to hold these two things together was faith in the covenant promises of God. Jesus, Messiah, is the resolution of the tension. And he resolves the tension not by explaining the mystery of simultaneous presence and absence and some kind of philosophical resolution there, but rather by embodying both of them at the same time. In Jesus, paradoxically, the hidden God is revealed and the revealed God is hidden. And on the one hand, the hidden God is revealed in that Jesus is made manifest in the flesh He is incarnate. He is God-embodied. Yet on the other hand, in Jesus, the revealed God is hidden. In one sense, this is because in Jesus, God is in the world, but he frequently goes unrecognized and unacknowledged. He's hidden in that way. People dismiss the Christ as insane or even evil, failing to recognize or acknowledge who he truly is. God is in their midst, and yet they cannot or will not see him there. But in another sense, and even more profoundly, Jesus himself enter into, enters into our experience and thus experiences the absence of God for us. That is, just as he represents God's presence to us, he also experiences God's absence for us. When Jesus dies on the cross, he takes upon his own lips the cry of the psalmist that agonizing and terrifying reality that God has receded and hidden his face My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That God would take on human flesh, and even more scandalously, that God would die in human flesh, puts him completely out of reach of our rational human inventions. Divine incarnation and divine crucifixion are the boldest expressions of God's own statement, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts Isaiah 55 so in taking on human flesh in the womb of Mary and dying on the cross God not only reveals himself but in a very real sense conceals himself that is by revealing himself in such a shocking unexpected and scandalous way God shrouds himself from anyone who will not seek to understand him through faith so in the end we are back not only at the analogous experience of those in the Old Testament who struggled and grappled with the hiddenness of God, but also to the means by which they navigated the struggle: faith in what has already been revealed, and faith in the that the, of the promises that have been made. And finally, here Christ is the ultimate embodiment of God's particular pattern of deliverance, the narrative shape of God's salvation through Esther, bears a striking correspondence to the shape of God's salvation through Christ. In the book of Esther, a royal figure takes upon herself the plight of her people, faces a life-threatening peril on their behalf, and because of her faithfulness, brings about the salvation of her people. Sound familiar? And as a result, the people are filled with joy and celebrate their victory over evil and death with great feasting. The very same pattern is seen in Jesus. He is a royal figure who takes upon himself a plight of his people. He too faces a life-threatening, indeed a life-ending peril on their behalf. He too brings about the salvation of his people through his faithfulness. And as a result, his people too are filled with joy and celebrate their victory over evil and death with great feasting. Think of it this way. The Lord's Day is our weekly Purim festival. So eat today with cheer and gladness as our ancient spiritual ancestors did in the triumph over their foes. Esther is a story that cannot merely be brushed aside as a Cinderella story of intrigue within the Persian court. It is so much more than that. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people like you and me to accomplish his purposes. The book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working. And to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. Through the prophet Joel, God gives a commandment to the people of Israel within the context of their impending judgment and national calamity. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. I can't be certain, but I suspect that many in this room are struggling with what to make of their life situations today. There's a lot of pain, confusion, frustration, disappointment. God seems hidden and far off from you. Perhaps like Esther, you've been brought to this moment in your life by circumstances over which you had no control, combined with flawed decisions that you made along the way. Perhaps instead of living as faithful witnesses for Christ, you have cowered back and so concealed your Christian faith that even if you were to be put on trial, no one would even be able to convict you of being a Christian. Maybe you find yourself facing calamity. Your idols are being toppled. Perhaps the circumstances of your life are are pulling you down in despair. Perhaps your own inner emotional world is crumbling. I don't know. But dear Christian, hear this gospel call. Regardless of the straits you find yourself in, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord and act boldly and decisively in confidence that His poetic providence is at work in your life. Rend your heart, not your garment. Fast, weep, and mourn, and return to the Lord your God in Christ. His purposes are greater than yours. His testimony is sure. And who knows, perhaps you have come to this present situation for such a time as this. So may we celebrate heartily, may we fight courageously, let's trust confidently, let's act decisively and with godly resolve under the mighty hand of God that does not fail. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the God who saves. You have given us your great promises and every spiritual blessing in Christ. Give us eyes to see your providential hand at work in the midst of confusing and difficult circumstances. Give us courage to act with bold integrity in our own defining moments. And may we rend our hearts and turn to you, for you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.